Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Chapter 1. Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waverhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. On this week's podcast, we will be talking all about the Game of Thrones season finale. And... No, of course not. But before we get to that, time is running out to enter the contest to win Toby's City Trilogy. His publisher is giving away a full set of his books. And there's going to be a winner in North America, in Europe, and for now that does include the United Kingdom, and the rest of the English-speaking world. So just go to tobyball.com for all the details. And speaking of the devil... Now Toby will read some items purchased through the Amazon link at CrimeWritersOn.com Cuticle Nipper Full Jaw Professional Grade Stainless Cuticle Cutter by Utopia Care Disney Men's T-Shirt Mickey Mouse Motorcycle Rally Doctor's Best Quercetin Bromelain Capsules I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally other podcasts. You can call it the epilogue to the greatest podcast of them all. Adnan Syed had his day in court and has seen his 1999 homicide conviction vacated. So how did this happen? And what's next in the legal case that has captivated millions? Well, we're going to try to figure that out in this episode. And joining me to break it all down is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Good evening, Kevin. Break what down? It. It? Did something happen? (laughs) And also on the line with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. And also joining us, of course, is our favorite devil's advocate, crime and noir fiction writer, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Jumbo, Rebecca. (laughs) (laughs) Where are you, Toby, that you're using this crazy dialect? Uh, I'm just in my guest room. Oh. (laughs) But that's uh, sort of the typical Kenyan greeting. Oh, I thought you got to walk about. It's so worldly. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole different continent. You know that, right? Walkabout in Kenya? Different yeah, I know. I know. Okay, just checking I, to make sure. It's, it's the continent of not the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> and Laura, how are you doing this evening? What have you been up to lately? Have you been visiting Kenya as well? I have not, but I do have a posse now, so I'm feeling good about that. Oh, would you like to fill our listeners in on your posse? Apparently, I have a posse um, that is either the Bricker Boys, the Bricker Babes, or it could be the Bricker Bitches. I'm not really sure. Um, The (laughs) sassy gay men who want to go on historical adventures with me and drink wine. Hey, if somebody is willing to go with you on one of those historically accurate trips, bully to them. Yeah, (laughs) I should do it. My family would be so relieved they didn't have to go. Do we we have a head count on how many men we're talking about? You know, I haven't heard back from them yet. So um, I don't know. I mean, it could be be a harem. It could be just one guy saying, 
I have a lot of these friends. Like air quotes? Yes, yeah. They're they're all in Canada. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, before we get started with our big conversation this week, let's get some business taken care of. At the end of this summer, we are planning our first Crime Writers On Book Club podcast. Here's how it's going to work. Right now, each of us is going to nominate a book and give a one-sentence reason why it should be our book club pick. Then you, the audience, are going to go to our website, crimewriterson.com, and vote for which one of these books we, and we hope you, will read this summer before that book club episode. So has everybody brought a book pick to nominate? Everyone, just say yes if you have. Yes. So I'm going to start with you, Laura. What is your nomination for the first Crime Writers On Summer Book Club podcast? Tell us why. Okay, it's I Am Pilgrim by Terry Hayes. Um, I polled everybody on Facebook. This was the shore leader. Uh, It's the day of the jackal meets homeland with a dash of Jason Bourne, a debut thriller to take your breath away. Wow. Ooh. Sounds like someone read the book jacket. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at it right now. All right, Toby, what is your pick? My pick is People Who Eat Darkness by Richard Lloyd Perry. It's a really well-written true crime book about a young British woman who disappears in Japan. And it talks a lot about, you know, aspects of Japanese culture and bar culture and some of the um, cultural misunderstandings between Westerners who, who end up working there. I think you just like you're into geishas and that's why. <laughs> I, think, that too. I think he just wants to do a book pick that he's already read. <laughs> to read it again. All right, Kevin, what is your book pick? I understand you have a little bit of a dark horse. I'm, I'm, I have a very controversial pick and I'm going to go with If I Did It by O.J. Simpson. (laughs) We've all just invested about 400 minutes into the documentary on O.J. Simpson, plus the people versus O.J. Simpson. Our listeners have been really taken with the O.J. story again. I thought it might be interesting to take a look at this version of the narrative and see how it fits with the... with what we, we already know. All right. I don't want to like convince our listeners to vote one way or the other, but just think about what you actually want to read. Some that is my suggestion. You're, you're poisoning the well here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for nothing. All right. So my pick is Wild Lake by Laura Lippman. I think I mentioned on a recent episode that I had been listening to it on audiobook. It is To Kill a Mockingbird meets Girl on a Train. It is a fun excellent, beautifully written uh, mystery that involves the legal profession. It has an extremely interesting uh, literary device used in the book, and I just can't say enough good things about it, and I think our listeners really, really love it. So that's my pick. Does it have any hermaphrodites? What? No hermaphrodites. And, Don't give it away. Sorry, no, 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 no hermaphrodites. But so anyway, we will post more about the books on our website, crimewriterson.com, and there will be a link right on the homepage for you to pick the book that we talk about. And who knows? Maybe we'll be able to get the author on with us for our book club. I don't know. Probably not. Probably not OJ. If OJ's you... probably. Not <laughs> All right. So let's go ahead and get started with the big news of the moment, shall we? And that, of course, is Adnan Syed's victory at that post-conviction relief hearing, which took place all the way back in the winter. The serial season one subject had his conviction vacated in an epic decision written by Judge Welsh, meaning he could get a new trial. When this happened late last week, we put up a teaser for our listeners soliciting your reactions to the news. And we got, I don't know, Kevin, would you say a lot of responses? 
We did. Way more than usual. <laughs> it's been pretty great. So if we don't get to your response this week, we're sorry. We just could not possibly pack them all into one episode. We got some great questions and comments. The first one we're going to play is Rochelle from Toronto, who was one of the people who responded with a voice memo, and her reaction was pretty emotional. I just heard your announcement about Adnan Science new trial, and I literally feel like I had to pull over the car, and I can feel like tears are coming because it's just a miracle. My friend Anne and I were in Baltimore in early March at the fundraiser for him, and I just can't believe that this is happening, and I know that he is going to walk away from this a free man. All right, so Rochelle from Toronto, pretty emotional there. Now, Laura, I would love to know what, you know, I'm not expecting you to start crying right now. I know you a little bit better than that, but what was your reaction when you first heard about this decision at at the PCR hearing? So I was just gobsmacked. It was like an ending to a movie that you didn't really see coming. Um, When this whole hearing ended earlier this year, I thought, you know, they've given it their best effort. And I really didn't know which way it was going to go because I've seen cases that I thought for sure were going to be overturned. And then for whatever reason, the judge disagrees. I was pretty amazed. Um, And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this proceeds. Toby, what was your reaction when you heard the news? You know, I guess I don't have enough of a sense of the way these things go to be all that surprised. You know, I guess it kind of came out of the blue. Like I I didn't realize they were working up to a decision like this, but I wasn't necessarily surprised to know that he was going to get a new hearing. What about you, Kevin? What was your initial reaction? I know you spoiled it a little bit in the teaser, but go ahead and recreate it for us. I was I was pretty surprised. I mean, I thought Laura's right. You just never know. You know, you can you can really go in thinking everything about this is perfect, but Judges don't always see it that way. Or I should say, what you see doesn't always conform to strict interpretation of the law. And so you really just don't know. Now, I think people, the the emotion has been great on social media. And people from like both sides have been very vocal. And it's uh, it's almost a little scary to talk about this because people are like so charged about this. And it's kind of like, hey, the goal was to win the game. It doesn't matter if it wasn't a no-hitter. Right. You know, it's okay. You didn't win on every count. You didn't need to. So it's okay if we point out the things that didn't go right. Well, speaking of that, why don't you go ahead and break down, uh, you know, how the scoring happened in Judge Welch's decision. Okay. Well, it's kind of like in a fight. <laughs> they, they break it down. So it's a split decision on Asia McLean's testimony. The judge agreed that Gutierrez was wrong not to contact her, but he ruled that her testimony wouldn't have changed the outcome because he felt that the crux of the case was elsewhere. Um, The prosecution did not violate Brady by withholding the facts cover sheet, according to the court, because the defense had waived its claim to argue this, which was surprising little bit of legal trivia that I'd know, and also because the sheet had actually been turned over to the defense. It was in their pile of stuff, even though it was misplaced. And it was jumbled. in Robbie's files. It's, yeah, I think you have to admit, and it's kind of hard to say it wasn't turned over, even though it wasn't very obvious. Uh, but the winning argument for failing to cross-examine the state's witness about the disclaimer on uh, location tracking with those incoming cell calls, not only did Gutierrez provide ineffective counsel, but also the second prong, her incompetence also calls into question whether the trial outcome would be different. That's a violation of a non-Sixth Amendment rights, and it's the basis for a new trial. So that is the score there. And uh, we have gotten some very technical questions from our listeners about this decision and what could happen next. So let's first go to Tina from New Orleans. She wants to know about what's going to happen.
happen to some of the critical evidence if there is a retrial. First, I want to thank you for getting that little mini episode out so fast. I really enjoyed it. I especially enjoyed the part where Rebecca kept jumping in as Kevin was reading the ruling and saying, denied, denied, granted, to kind of reinforce those points. That really cracked me up. My question is regarding the evidence that the judge basically dismissed in his ruling, namely Asia's alibi testimony and the facts cover sheet that Yurik and or his staff didn't send to Adnan's defense. Can that still be presented at trial or not? Full disclosure to our audience, the four of us, we're not lawyers, even though sometimes we like to pretend that I'm kind of like are. the grinder. <laughs> Luckily, I happen to know a pretty impressive legal mind who is actually equipped to respond to this particular question, as well as some others we've received this week. So let's just go ahead and uh, hear his voice and see what he had to say. The answer here is absolutely. There are a few different reasons. One, this would certainly seem to qualify as a business record. AT&T said they attached it to all of their cell tower records. And there's a Maryland rule, Maryland rule of evidence 5-803B6, which says business records such as these are non-hearsay and they're perfectly admissible. Beyond that, there's Maryland Rule of Evidence 5-106, the rule of completeness, which says if you're introducing a document into evidence, the court should receive any other supporting documents that in fairness need to be considered together. And so certainly a disclaimer saying incoming pings are unreliable should be considered in fairness with the cell tower pings showing incoming calls at 7.09 and 7.16 p.m. Even if for some reason the court found these rules didn't apply, there's a Maryland rule, Maryland Rule of Evidence 5-703, which says that even inadmissible evidence can be introduced in conjunction with expert testimony if the evidence is of the type reasonably relied upon by experts in the field. And certainly in this case, a disclaimer from AT&T itself saying incoming calls are not reliable for location would be reasonably relied upon by cell tower experts and radio frequency engineers. That was, of course, Colin Miller, the evidence professor behind the Evidence Prof blog and associate dean at the University of South Carolina Law School. And of course, our audience might better know him as one of the panelists on the Undisclosed podcast. So here's my question for you, Toby. We just heard Colin seamlessly rattle off all of these statutes, including Evidence Rule 5-803-B6, do you think he looked that up before he answered that question, or do you think he just rattled that off off the top of his head? What do you think, Toby? Well, if he's like me, he probably does have the Maryland statutes committed to memory. <laughs> what do you think, Laura? Oh, yeah. No, I think he, I mean, this is what he does all the time. So this is like nothing for him to just pull this out of thin air. I think he's like Siri. <laughs> <laughs> Legal Seer, we are very, of course, very lucky to have special access to him, which, uh, you know, he, he he took some of our audience questions and just tackled them himself and sent them back to me in about five minutes. So I can, Has I he can, been talking about this at all? He <laughs> has. He has. But 5-803-B6, like, I can't even remember your cell phone number, Kevin. I have to still look you up in my contacts. It's not 50. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So another question that we got from a whole lot of people, a lot of our listeners wanted to know if Adnan would be granted bail and what arguments might Justin Brown and Adnan's new legal team, because we heard this week that a new law firm had come on the case pro bono, what arguments might be made and what's the likelihood that he would prevail in getting bail? Unfortunately, there's not a lot of clear precedent out there. Maryland has a Uniform Post-Conviction Procedure Act, 
And section 7-109, subsection B2, deals with a situation where a petitioner like Adnan has been granted a new trial and the state's appealing. And it says, if the attorney general or a state's attorney states an intention to file an application for an appeal under this section, the court may stay the order and set bail for the petitioner. So clearly the court has the power to grant Adnan bail. And what's the answer in terms of the likelihood of success? It's tough to say. This is a life sentence, so obviously this is something where, irrespective of the particular facts, there's a flight risk. This is a murder case, so obviously there's a worry about members of the community, even though the court has thrown out Nan's conviction. On the other hand, it seems to me the state likely can't make a strong showing that they're going to succeed in appeal. This is a case where Nan has no violent history either before or after the crime charged, so it's a close call. My guess would be either no bail or bail set at a high amount. But again, there's not clear guidance from the Maryland courts about whether and when bail should be granted under these circumstances. Now, Laura, you spent a long time working on defense. I'd love to hear your opinion on this bail question. We have now somebody who has been in prison for a long time, convicted of murder, whose conviction has now been vacated. I think there are questions that were raised fair questions about his bail proceeding the first time around. What do you think about bail in this case, and, and what's your experience with bail and your work and your work on defenses? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Colin. I would be very surprised if any sort of bail was granted. I think it's very rare when somebody is awaiting even a retrial. I think it's very rare um, in a murder case for bail to be granted. And if it is, it's usually set so high that the only people that are out are like, you know, the Michael Petersons of the world. So I would be surprised, but I'm also curious to see uh, which direction the state is going to go with this case. I think that may dictate a lot of how this plays out. I'm right on the money with Laura on both of those points. What do you mean? Well, first of all, I, I think it is very rare for someone who is, now he is facing a homicide charge. It's almost as if he's 17 years old again and just got hauled in from the police department. He's facing a judge. It's a serious crime. And he will be perceived as a flight risk nonetheless, because anyone in a homicide case like that would be perceived that way. But it is possible that he could get bail at, you know, a million dollars or something like that. And I think that maybe the community would rally around getting him that money so that he could come out. However, if and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, if the state decides they're going to null pros, then wait, they're going to they're do what? They're going to they're, they're going to not yeah, proceed. That, yeah. Let's just ask a simple question. Do you think that a non should be granted bail or do you think that he should just have to continue to wait where he is until this thing you know, goes the full course? You know, it's going to sound harsh because I think he probably shouldn't be granted bail. And I think it's more a matter of what, what are your policies are rather than his particular case. If what you're really facing is, is life in prison, I think there's very little reason not to run regardless of, of what it costs you because otherwise you're just going to spend the rest of your life in prison. I would be surprised if they offered him bail. But again, I, it's like this is not something I know much about. Another question we received. If Welch's decision is upheld on appeal, how much time does the state have in deciding whether or not they will ask for a retrial or just go ahead and drop the charges? Now, if you just took a quick look at Maryland law, you'd see a rule that says prosecutors generally have 180 days to bring a case to trial. That said, there's a 1981 opinion of the Court of Special Appeals of Maryland in a case called Donald's that said this 180-day deadline does not apply to retrials after a successful appeal. So what does that mean? It means that Nan's rights are his rights under the Sixth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, specifically his right to a speedy trial. 
that provision was interpreted by the Supreme Court in Barker versus Wingo. So how does that work? Essentially, once that order granting Adnan a new trial becomes finalized, Adnan would request a new trial. And if it came to an issue of was his right violated, the court would apply a four-factor test. One, what's the length of the delay? Two, what's the reason for the delay? Three, what's the time and manner in which the defendant asserted his right to a speedy trial? And four, what's the degree of prejudice to the defendant which the delay has caused? Practically, what does that mean? I've seen many murder cases where it wasn't brought to trial within a year, two years, sometimes even three years. So based upon that opinion in Donald's, it's much more ambiguous than it should be when this case actually would have to be brought to a new trial. All right. This is all about whether or not someone can receive a speedy trial, which is a constitutional right. Mm -hmm. But Kevin, just for perspective here, let's talk about just like some of the cases that we know that are familiar to us here in New Hampshire. How long does it take a murder case to go to trial, even in this state? Oh, in this state? Well, I mean, we have a a much smaller prosecutorial team and whatnot, and actually not as many homicides per capita. However, it often takes up to two years. Right. It's not just taking Adnan to trial again. It's an appeals process that also has to play out before they can make the decision to actually do that. So when he says it could be two or three years, I'm not surprised. Right. But I think that even after that appeals process has seen itself through, it could still be quite a while. I mean, I guess my question for you, Toby, is if you killed someone, how fast do you think your trial should should happen? (laughs) And can I go? How fast should it happen? No, right. sixty days. <laughs> I, I, it does seem like the the whole like a speedy trial thing. I, I can't imagine this is what you know James Madison had in mind was these two year delays, right? Was right. that the way it was back then? Probably not, but I think that just process has gotten in the way. Is that is that about accurate, Laura? Just like the process and the time it takes to do everything has just kind of gotten in the way of anything being speedy in the legal system. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, because anytime there's any sort of paperwork filed, then there's like, you know, then you have 15, you know, a certain number of days before the other side responds. And in a case like this, they're probably all going to have experts on both sides. And those experts are going to want to review all of the evidence. So, I mean, I could see this going on and on and on. All right. We also got a question on Twitter from Christy. She wants to know more about an Alford plea and if Adnan were to take one, what that would mean for any further police investigations into Heyman Lee's murder. Well, Christy, let's start at the beginning. An Alford plea originates from a 1963 fatal shooting at a bar in North Carolina. Alford was accused of fatally shooting another man. And at his plea hearing, he maintained his innocence despite the fact that the prosecution had three witnesses testifying against him. And in order for a guilty plea to be valid, it has to be based upon a proper factual predicate. Usually that predicate is the defendant testifying under oath during a plea colloquy that he committed the crime. And Alford's claim on appeal was, this guilty plea is not valid. I didn't admit my guilt. And what the Supreme Court says is, you can have what's now known as an Alford plea, wherein the defendant maintains his innocence and yet acknowledges the state has sufficient evidence to prove his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, practically speaking, an Alford plea is the same thing as a guilty plea. In fact, at the plea hearing, what the defendant would say is, when asked, are you pleading guilty pursuant to the Supreme Court's opinion in North Carolina versus Alford, he would answer, yes, I'm pleading guilty. And again, Just like with a guilty plea, the case is considered closed. It's used in a lot of wrongful conviction cases. And 
if the nine were to enter an Alfred plea in this case, again, the state would consider it closed. They would not conduct any further investigation unless something magically fell into their laps. We did have a companion to this question and answer from a listener named Julie who asked, what if the Baltimore prosecutor's office decides to offer Adnan an Alfred plea in exchange for him walking free? Do you think Adnan should take it or go to trial and prove that he's innocent? Laura, I would love to know what you think about this conundrum. Oh, boy. Well, you know, and I'm not a lawyer, but I I wouldn't take it because I think, you know, from everything that was in this ruling, I think that the state's timeline is now just shot. I think there's so much evidence. I mean, the cell phone evidence, which was really the crux of their case, is pretty much invalidated at this point um, because we really can't confirm the location. So I think you would take that plea if you knew that there was overwhelming evidence that the state was going to be able to convict you. And I think based on all the work that has been done on Adnan's case, that there is enough reasonable doubt that would be in the minds of the jurors that I think he could go forward with the trial and come out and be acquitted. But if he really wanted to just end this and be done with it, I mean, I think it's kind of a personal decision for him. I'm not going to look at it from what Adnan should do. I'm going to think about what the state is thinking right now. And I think right now they are talking with Heyman Lee's family about their feelings on how to proceed. And because I think that right now they must feel like their only chance of prevailing is on appeal because the way that their case on is... On appeal of overturning on, the Judge Welch's correct, decision. Not that, on appeal of the tr- of the conviction, right? Right, right, right. I don't think they want to go to trial again, although they could. Their best shot just has to be on appeal. I think that they know if they go to trial, their case is severely weakened, and we will continue to talk about that. I think their second choice would be to offer an Alfred plea because it does stay on the books as a conviction, meaning the case is closed. They can walk away saying, we got our guy. And for none, as good as this decision is for him and the way we read it, it still could be three or four years right. just to have to freedom. walk away freedom right. when he's already spent 16 years in jail. He's going to weigh that. And also, there are so many people who are thinking this is a slam dunk for Nod. The J testimony is tainted and the cell phone stuff won't work and he'll win at trial. And I will say to you that you are not going to be one of the 12 people on that jury. Right. And you have to think about that because a lot of people said the same thing about OJ. And it is still a roll of the dice. Even though you know how strong your case is, you have an opportunity to walk out of jail or you have an opportunity to wait a several more years and go to trial with what you think right now is a good case. Right. It's a tough call. It's a tough call. What would you pick? I, I don't know. I mean, if it were me, I probably would want to get out of jail. But I do understand if I feel very strongly that, look, I'm innocent. I don't want anybody thinking that I did it, which is what he said to Sarah Koenig. Then he probably will wait it out. What do you think, Toby? What do you think you would do in this situation? I I asked you about your speedy trial after the murder you committed earlier. Would you take the Alford play if you were in a non-shoes? Definitely. No question. Why is that? Uh, Well, I think there's a, a few things. One is just in general, if you're handed an opportunity to get out of a life sentence, I think you take it. You don't roll the dice. You know, so a bird in hand is worth two in the bush. If you do say, no, I'm going to clear my name, and then you don't, you're going to regret not taking the Alfred plea. The second thing is, I think, I don't think a second trial 
is going to convince anybody who's paying attention to it of anything. I, I, I mean, I think the camps are pretty set. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't have the situation where he's going to be like, I'll prove to everybody that I'm innocent. You know, a, a lot of people think he's innocent. A lot of people think he's guilty. And from what I've been able to tell, there's not a whole lot of changing of camps, you know. So I don't think he has to do that anymore. But- I think he can take the Alfred Alfred plea. I think there are a lot of people who are just like, thank God he's out. You know, thank God he's not spending another more another day in prison for something he didn't do. And then the people who think he's guilty are going to continue to think he's guilty. And the so. trade off from an Alfred plea is you have to remember is that he is walking out admitting guilt. Okay, to the state, well, to the state yeah. on paper. Okay, on paper, but that also means investigation closed. Well, so you may think it's Mr. X or Mrs. Y who actually did it, but there is almost no chance that is ever anyone is any police officer is going to make an arrest. Well, there, there's one other consequence. He could take the Alfred plea, and then there'd be a lot of you know probably support, public support for a continuing investigation into this murder, mm-hmm. and you know there might be an outcome at some point. Who knows? But I think the thing that's important to acknowledge here that maybe we don't acknowledge enough in these wrongful conviction cases is the family. I don't think most people think about this, but even when a dead to rights, wrongly convicted person wins their freedom, the family of the victim loses something. They lose the closure that they've had for many, many years. It's a sense of closure, and it might be a wrong sense of closure. It might might be the wrong person in prison. I mean, think about the way in the Stephen Avery case in making a murderer. You know, the victim's family was 100% sure the right person uh, was convicted. And this is what it is. When there's someone in prison for the killing of your loved one, you have a sense of closure. And it's a very rare instance that the family is also behind the wrong person is in prison because they are moving on. They're trying to get over their grief and loss, the pain of a trial. The idea of having a new trial is obviously incredibly painful. I guess my question for you, Laura, is, you know, in these cases, and I I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of this in upcoming years, you know, with this new look at the legal system and with wrongful convictions now becoming like a larger theme in our criticism of the justice system. Is there a better way, you think, as, as someone who worked on defense, to loop in families in these potential wrongful conviction cases, to loop them in and have it not feel like such a loss for them and have this appeals process be, you know, something that they feel they have to fight, you know, so hard for? I don't know. Is there a solution to this at all in, in terms of, you know, advocating for the families of the victims? Boy, I don't know. I mean, that that's a tough one. You know, the, the prosecutor's offices, I'm not sure how it is in Maryland, but, um, you know, here in New Hampshire and other states have victim witness advocates who are assigned to work the process, to keep them in the loop, to meet with them when there's potential plea deals on the table, to sit with them in the courtroom. So those people are sort of there for them during the process to support them. But when it comes to something like this, you know, they're obviously still there with them walking them through the process, but I don't really know how they change their feelings of loss and distress at a case like this being overturned. I've seen stories where people end up coming in and and some courts in New Hampshire are doing this now. It's kind of an alternative resolution thing where both sides will come into the judge's chambers and they'll sit down together at the table and hash out a case kind of face to face based on what we know about Heyman Lee's family. I don't necessarily see that happening in this case, but in some cases you do see that actually sitting down with the other side and having these honest discussions really brings 
the people to a different place so that they're able to walk away and move on. All right. Well, the next question that we had, and I'll be honest, this one was for me. (laughs) This was my question (laughs) that I had. Um, And I want to know if there's a new trial, will the state get the chance to create a brand new theory of the case? And if so, will their previous timeline, as well as Jay as a star witness, be a problem for the prosecution? And will the previous trials uh, be able to be brought in to the new trials? The answer to this is yes and yes. So first of all, absolutely, the state is free to change their theory and timeline at a new trial. They could claim there was no come and get me call. They could claim the burial was at midnight as opposed to in the seven o'clock hour. That said, the defense absolutely could use what happened at trials one and two, both to impeach the witnesses at this new trial, as well as to use the prior theory and timeline as substantive evidence to create reasonable doubt. So Maryland has a rule, Maryland Rule of Evidence 5-802.1a, that says everything at the prior trial is non-hearsay and can be used both substantively and to impeach. And so if Jay comes in pursuant to his intercept story and says the burial was at midnight or closer to midnight, they could introduce his testimony from the first trial both to impeach him, to call into question his credibility, but also to show to the jury, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the state has this timeline now. Well, back in 2000, they had a different timeline, and you can very much use that to create reasonable doubt in this prosecution. Now, guys, I'll be honest with you. I asked this question because as much as if I were you know, on the state side, I might not think it's wise to pursue a new trial. As a longtime spectator of this case, man, part of me would honestly like love to see what happens in a new trial. Is, does that make me a horrible person? No. There's other things <laughs> no, that make like you a horrible person. Now, Laura, please back <laughs> no, me up No, I'm here. with you. I'm with you. That's why I said before. I think that if they took this case to trial, there's been so much more investigation done now that they would have a much different trial than they did the last two times. And I, I would love to watch it. Last question. In an appeal, the judge writes his decision based on applications of the law. For example, he doesn't spend as much time weighing Asia's testimony as he does explaining whether or not it proves ineffective assistance of counsel. But he went to lengths to excoriate FBI agent Fitzgerald's testimony. And I guess the question for Colin was, have you ever seen anything like that before? The answer is yes, and it's not all that uncommon because there's a key difference between Asia McLean and Chad Fitzgerald. Asia McLean is a lay witness and a fact witness. Judgments of her testimony are largely subjective. And Judge Welch, sitting in the courtroom, seeing her demeanor, her manner of speech, etc., is able to comment on that in a way that an appellate court is not. And therefore, he can be brief in his analysis because the Court of Special Appeals is very unlikely to disturb it because they weren't in the courtroom to see her testimony. On the other hand, Agent Fitzgerald is an expert witness. Analysis of his testimony is more objective. And what Judge Welch wanted to do was to show that there was what's known as an analytical gap between the facts and his testimony. That phrase comes from a Supreme Court case, and that case is the Joyner case. And the Court of Appeals of Maryland cited to it in a case, Blackwell versus Wyatt. And that was a case where the plaintiffs were parents of an autistic child, and they were trying to show that vaccines were the cause of the child's autism. And the trial judge went to great lengths in that case to say, here is why there's an analytical gap between the research out there, the studies, and this expert's conclusion that vaccines can cause autism. Same thing here. Judge Welch was trying to say... Fitzgerald contradicted himself. 
he had a non-reasonable interpretation of what a subscriber activity report is, et cetera, he's trying to insulate his verdict from appellate scrutiny. And because Fitzgerald is an expert, there's more of a need to do that than there is with Asia McLean. Oh, bullshit. <laughs> that was an ass whipping. <laughs> Am I right? What was an ass whipping? The, the, the <laughs> The way he took down the FBI, he look at the judge used the word perplexed twice and both times pertaining to the state's arguments. And he went on and on in a way that was almost like he hit was cross examining Agent Fitzgerald. Laura, come on. You, you've read yeah, no, I'm with you. Right? I, I definitely I felt like when I walked away from reading that part, it was like he was insinuating that the FBI agent was changing his testimony to fit the state's theory because that was his job. You know, it just I came away from that thinking this guy just sounds like he was all over the place. And it was it was harsh. It was harsh. But I do buy what Colin had to say about, you know, shielding, you know, his decision from appeal by by using. I mean, that was the reason for the strong language there. And I yeah. love that expression. Apparently, apparently a legal expression, the analytical gap. And I'm already thinking about how I can use that, like in my everyday life, like um, <laughs> you mean around the house. Yeah. Like, so, Kevin, you didn't do the laundry. There's an analytical gap there between uh, my asking you to do the laundry and you choosing not to do the laundry. What's the analytical gap there? The analytical gap is you thinking I would do the laundry. <laughs> I don't know. I just think it's really interesting. Now, Toby, how do you think of how about how he worded uh, you know, this part of it? Do you think it was strong language or do you buy Colin's argument that it was just built to shield the ruling from appeal? I mean, I thought the whole thing is fairly harsh on the state. I mean, even where the state wins, it's it's sort of more on a, well, it's not really not that important, so we'll give you a pass type of thing. <laughs> even where they win, it's like... Yeah, technically you won this, but... My question after reading it that really stuck out to me was, it seems like the judge basically thinks that the entire case is about placing Adnan and Jay in Leakin Park around seven. Mm -hmm. And that's really the only thing that matters, right? Because he's like, everything else, like not getting Asia's testimony... It's bad and they should have done it, but because it doesn't relate to that particular piece, the being there at Lincoln Park at seven, right. it's not really material. So for him, it seems to all boil down to that one thing. Right. And like everything else is sort of superfluous. And is that like typical for a judge to be like, okay, well, this is my view of the case. And so therefore, if it's not to this particular point, which I find very important, then it's not germane to what the what the outcome was. All right, well, I'm going to weigh in here as the grinder, uh, the official fake lawyer of our four-person fake lawyer team, and say that my understanding from not only what Colin said that we heard that we just played in these edited clips, but also that what he said in sort of the expanded clips is that what the judge was saying was the trial hinged on that timeline. The trial that convicted Adnan hinged on that spine of the story, which was the state's timeline. And the evidence they used to prove it was the cell tower evidence, the cell tower pings. And that's what made the 7 p.m. timeline the one that they stuck with. And that was important because that was the thing that turned the jury to say guilty so that without that foundation there, when you sort of take the floor out from that part of the story, 
that the state's version of events at trial, they wouldn't have been able well, to prove it at trial. There's, there's no evidence about the killing. There's no murder weapon. There's no eyewitness to the murder. It's all The motive post, was circumstantial. It was all post-murder activity that was what the case was based on, which was Jay's eyewitness testimony and saying that they you know, buried the body and all that other stuff. So the whole case did hinge on everything that happened after the homicide because there's very little evidence of what happened at or leading up to the homicide, which in one way is why Asia's testimony, while credible, the judge not that important. It, it isn't necessarily exculpatory. It wouldn't necessarily have changed and the jury's point of view. I want to loop back to something that we, was not brought up in any of this and is still just kind of hanging out there, and it's the lividity evidence. Yeah. And it, which is, as you recall, it shows that Hay was left. At, you know, in the hours after her death on her stomach. For 10 hours. And not pretzeled up on her side, like in a trunk or buried in Lincoln Park at 7 o'clock. And to me, that means the state's theory of the case is completely wrong. So to me, everything that happened that day, in a way, it doesn't matter whether Asia saw him or didn't see him in the library because at 2.30, there was no homicide happening right, then. Right. At 7 o'clock, you know, in Lincoln Park, there was no body being buried then. It was some other time. So that trial and, would not have had the same outcome. And I think this is the interesting thing, though. This is that even people who, a lot of the people who are like, what they call them, quote, guilters, mm -hmm. who are for some reason 100% sure <laughs> that Anon is guilty, which, by the way, I have the same skepticism for people that are 100% sure that he's not guilty because nobody actually knows. Like, we don't know. We have a feeling. We have an opinion. Nobody actually knows, right? right? Right. The thing is, though, this trial was clearly based on a theory of the case and evidence which does not bear water. It just doesn't. And if I were writing the fiction version of this, I was saying this to Kevin the other day, like the British uh, drama version of this would be that, you know, Adnan is acquitted, he gets to walk away free, and then all this evidence comes out, and it turns out he really did do it. I mean, that would be sort of like the very dark British. Anyway. Is it like presumed innocent? What was the, the movie with... Exactly. Oh, with Richard yeah. Gere. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But, no, but like whether or not he did it isn't even what's on the table right now. What's on the table right now is the process by which he is was convicted right. and is right. sitting in yeah. prison. Right. Post-conviction relief has almost nothing to do with, with whether or, guilt, or not. Right, right? exactly. It's right. all about where their errors made. And I feel like no one is talking about like that part of it. That, you know, this isn't about people who believe he's innocent saying like, yay, innocent man is going for him. And a lot of people are saying that. People who believe it, people who know him, like Rabia Chaudhry. We don't know him. We don't know. But we know that the process was messed up. I yeah. don't know. Laura, do you have anything yeah. to say about this part of it? Yeah, no, I agree. And that was, um, you know, I, my defense attorney friends that have been following this case, that was kind of one of the angle they're coming from, which is we're not so sure that this guy didn't do it, but the process of his trial was not a fair process and he deserves a new trial. So whether or not he did it or he didn't do it, you know, we don't know, but we do know that this process was completely flawed. Right. Well, I do want to give a big, big thanks to Colin Miller for answering the questions that we couldn't from our listeners that we were unqualified to answer. You may know Colin from the Undisclosed podcast, but you can also find his giant legal brain getting some work done at the Evidence Prof blog and, of course, at the law school at the University of South Carolina. So, Kevin, uh, do you have any final thoughts on anything that Colin Miller had to say? Well, just, you, you know, like they say that sometimes... The most probable solution is the help me out on this Occam's one. Occam's razor, the most uh, yeah, Occam's razor. The However, most obvious solution. But is Occam's the razor is not as sharp as the Harry's razors that I like to get. <laughs> Five blades of German engineering. It leaves my cheeks as smooth as a cherub's ass. 
I'm just so wow. you, you you have a, a Harry's razor too, right? I, I love my Harry's razor. Now, do you we shave on the weekends too? When necessary. Okay, so, so most of the time though, like on Monday morning, you've got that weekend stubble. That's right. And it's really thick, and so you grab your fresh Harry's. And what happens when you do that first stroke? It, it's 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 not a stroke; it's a caress. It's a. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like explicit rating just went up here. (laughs) Harry's razors are are awesome. I got my son one for his birthday. And he stole yours. I saw it on the Twitter. I did too. Well, that that was actually his birthday present. Ah. Now he's a real man using a Harry's razor. He's had to shave since he was like 14. Wow. He had a beard as a freshman in high school. But anyway, (laughs) we digress. Harry's is awesome. Harry's is awesome, and it's an excellent razor at a great price, half the price of the leading brand. So what we would like you to do is if you want to try Harry's razor, you want to get their starter set. It's called Truman. I can't, Harry Truman, get it? Yeah, I do get it. I you do, do get, get it. it. Okay. Get it. Uh, so <laughs> it's a great deal for just $15. You get a razor handle, moisturizing shave cream, and three of Harry's five-blade German engineered razors. And there's a special offer for fans of Crime Writers on Harry's will give you $5 off your first purchase with the promo code CRIME. And this is great. It's either for yourself. Give it as a gift. And I always say, like, if you're the person in the house who does the grocery shopping, you should make a gift out of this for the maybe the man in the house because it's really a gift to yourself. So you don't have to stand in front of that stupid locked <laughs> cabinet trying to get razors, right? And say, honey, this is for you because I love you. No. Like a criminal. Yeah, it's baloney. It's like I'm saving myself so much time doing that. So uh, right now, go to harrys.com. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Enter code CRIME, crime. at checkout. <laughs> get $5 off and help support our show. Stop compromising. Give Harry's a try today. What was that promo code? Crime. Crime. Okay. Uh, I'm going for the Harry Styles. Is that is that one of their models? New, oh. Oh, nice. We should come up with some new stuff. That was stuff so modern or, of you, Toby. So modern. Let's come yeah, up I've with got, I've some, got a 10-year-old daughter. Let, let's come up with some new uh, Harry's products perhaps that they should do and let's tweet at them yeah and say i i, I mentioned that harry hamlin before but i wasn't taking oh that's on like it. 10 races are we talking la law harry hamlin are we talking, no, talking clash of the titans yes oh. percy is harry hamlin like he can like hold the medusa like it's head for, over it's one. for shaving your chest that's right that's right that's right <laughs> that's right so kevin uh no and do we have toby back toby back yeah, i'm, I'm right. back there's a feline what, what oh. which one was it toby it was uh hunter is Littlefoot back? Littlefoot's out but, looking for but something she didn't, to kill. Okay, but she didn't remember she had like vanished and she yeah, was Yeah, like, no, okay. she's back. Yes. Okay. Back. yes. Littlefoot is back. All the unsolved murders of Littlefoot. <laughs> yeah. It might make a good set of episodes for this new podcast that we want to talk about called Unsolved Murders. <laughs> unsolved Murders. True yep. Crime Stories. Nice. Well, it's a new twist on true crime and cold cases because Unsolved Murders, it's different. They've got a staff of screenwriters. Wait, this is an ad. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Keep going. Yeah, it's screenwriters, an ensemble of voice actors, and a talented digital production team that brings these cold cases to life. So it's a dramatization yep. of real cold cases. It's OTR. It's OTR, old-time radio. You might learn a little bit about some cases that you never heard of, like the Axeman of New Orleans. And Interesting fact, he once promised not to kill anybody on a Tuesday night if everybody in New Orleans played jazz music. Wow. In New Orleans last summer. I didn't hear any jazz music, though. Because he's not still killing people with an axe. Good point. (laughs) 
So That's visit, a good point. yeah, visit uh, parcast.com slash unsolved to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash unsolved to listen now. And you listen on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, just about any place that podcasts emanate from. Uh, search for Unsolved Murders, the true crime stories to listen now. Again, that's Unsolved Murders, true crime stories. All right. New crime writers on drinking game rule. Yeah. When you say emanate instead of emanate, drink. Okay, hold on. <laughs> Here we go. Ouch. I love my husband, but he's not the greatest pronouncer. I was thing. just talking off the top of my head. <laughs> All right, so how do you guys think that Kevin did on the transition into that ad break? Toby, I'm going to start with you. I don't know how you're going to edit that, but uh, <laughs> I kind of I saw it coming. Yeah. Occam's Razor, you saw it coming? I actually thought it was a different person than we were who was sponsoring us at that point, and I I was like thinking of the segue you were about to do, <laughs> but then when it got to Occam's Razor, so I guess in that way it was like you made a move that could go in many directions. So I guess nice. that, that's an A. Yeah, yeah, I you know I agree because I actually didn't know which one was coming first either. I thought you were going to kind of go with another sponsor first, and um, I thought it was going a different direction too. Yeah, I was so. halfway through the uh, the spot, and you were like, Dude, "Oh, this is." I'm the one who set you up to say the ad, and you still surprised me. I know. Yeah. yeah. So, uh. so Laura, what do you what do you think, Laura? It was it was very surprising. I actually wasn't even really paying attention to where we were, and I was like, "Wait a minute, that was it was like a 180 to the ad." Yeah, yeah, it was pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. All right. So, speaking of amazing, I, I do want to come back to Judge Welch's ruling for a little bit here. I want to talk for just a minute about the writing. We talked before uh, Kevin's epic ad break about the way Judge Welch used some of his, you know, excoriating language. But Kevin really has spent a tremendous amount of time reading this ruling in the last few days. You know, for example, um, one day he found something so great in it that I was in the shower and he was on the other side of the shower curtain, you know, reading me, <laughs> reading me part of the ruling. And Kevin, I understand I wasn't that actually reading. I was just kind of staring. <laughs> you actually do think that some of the best stuff in this opinion is actually in the footnotes it of is. it. Give us an example well, okay, of that. I'm just going to preface this by saying I actually have you know a lot of respect after reading this for Judge Welch because his decision, and written by him and a, probably a very smart clerk, really sticks to within the bounds of the case. But sort of the places that he does indulge in sort of going beyond the walls of this courtroom happened in the footnotes. One of the most interesting footnotes is about Kevin Urich and about the prosecutorial misconduct charge, allegation, what have you. He brushed it aside in a footnote by saying that the court does not need to make a ruling on prosecutorial misconduct for the whole Asia McLean, whether or not she was or wasn't going to come testify because she has just testified. So it makes the point moot. I thought that was really interesting. Yep. Well, was there anything else in the, in the footnotes that you thought was interesting? My favorite part was at the end where the judge made it clear that he had not listened to Serial mm -hmm. as part of this process. I thought that was, uh, I, I liked that he had to add that in there. Toby, did you read anything in the judge's footnotes or in his ruling that stuck out to you in terms of just like what he chose to, to write about this case? Well, on page 45, they've got back-to-back -back footnotes where the first sentence I thought both were pretty amusing. The first one is footnote number 21 says, trial counsel did not have to be clairvoyant to predict that the state would rely upon petitioner's cell phone records. And then the next one, 22, it says, 
a reasonable attorney would have noticed that Exhibit 31 is an excerpt of a larger set of phone records because the top of the very first page of these phone records clearly specified subscriber activity, all in caps. Yeah, and I think I think this is also the same footnote that ends with the quote, trial counsel simply had to use two fundamental <laughs> skill yes. sets that yep. are essential to reasonably competent lawyers, reading comprehension and attention to detail. Ouch. Ouch. Let me flip that that thought, though. If the judge is saying that as a defense attorney, all you really needed to do was read it and understand what it was that you would know that the evidence is faulty. What does that conversely say about the prosecution? The prosecutors who also presumably read the same thing and then presented the evidence. Can we not infer that perhaps the prosecutors were being disingenuous with presenting this? Like they knew that this was faulty science? I'm going to shock you here for a second. And the shocking thing that I'm going to say is, while I believe, you know, and I am just as much of a, you know, pro-justice banner bearer as anyone, mm-hmm. that if something doesn't smell right, that as a prosecutor, you should just like, you know, just rip up that part of your case, because clearly it's no good. But as a human being, I know that when I believe something to be true, just like everyone else does... I use what I have in front of me to make my case. <laughs> I mean, so so think about it. So if, Yeah, but they didn't use the cell phone evidence in the first trial. That was the mistrial. And they right. brought it in the second. And they knew that they were much weaker the first time. They needed to up their game. They right. brought that the second time. Well, I, I kind of feel like what you're implying is that the second trial, they knew that Christina Gutierrez was weak and wouldn't pick it up. So that they, they, they deceived no, her I, on purpose. No, I, I'm implying that they read that. And just as, you know... That the, if he's saying that it, all it would take would be to read this to know that this was junk science, right? Would you not take away from it that the prosecution did read it? We're not talking and knew about it was right. junk science yes. and put it on anyway. Well, me, Rebecca Lavoie, yes. As the prosecutor who's singularly focused on winning in the courtroom, I might read it and say, you know what, let her argue that. But we're just going to use everything on pages two through eighteen. And if she argues that page one thing, then it'll be up to the jury to decide. I mean, that would be mm-hmm. my point of view. As a prosecutor, and they lucked out because Christina Gutierrez didn't question the cover sheet. Well, Laura, am I, am I crazy Laura's going to disagree with you. You, you. you can disagree. I'm not saying it's ethically right, but I also understand yeah, how and human— I, by the way, I'm not saying that no, maybe the No, that's how it works. That's how it works all the time. I mean, it, it's it's a game. I mean, it's it's all about, like, Rebecca, it's what you have and how you can put that in the best possible light to win. I mean, honestly— these lawyers are so competitive. I know there are lawyers out there that have the big moral reason of, you know, how they get involved in cases. And we all do. But at the heart of it, these are extremely intelligent, competitive people who want to win. So, you know, I, I agree with Rebecca on this one. Well, it's interesting because I do think that prosecutors are built of different stuff. You know, I recently, and this isn't a spoiler alert because uh, Robbie Achadri talked about it on this last episode. I recently sat in a taping between her. She interviewed Dean Strang, the, the defense attorney from the Stephen Avery case. He was, it turns out, was a prosecutor before he was a defense attorney. And he described it this way. He was a prosecutor for like six months and he just knew it wasn't right for him. He loved being a lawyer. He hated being a prosecutor. I think he said it was something like, I was wearing the right pair of shoes, but they were on the wrong feet. Mm -hmm. And I do think, and Kevin, you and I know prosecutors personally, they're built of different stuff and they do have 
you know, it's a very human sense of, and, and a lot of them too, even the ones that are like really looking for the truth, which in New Hampshire, I think is a different bar because we have so few murders here that like, you know, when there is a murder case, the person probably actually did it by the time we prosecute them. But they are built of different stuff, I think. And my guess is that they looked at all that stuff and they said, you know what? Let her challenge it. Let's see what happens. And that was how it went. It wasn't them saying, we're going to lie about this. I don't know. I think Yurik did some shady stuff. As much as the judge put this in play, he put it on Christina Gutierrez. He didn't put it on Yurik. It would have been shady if they'd, if they'd withheld that page one. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, the, and we can argue they've withheld other things. But that was actually among Rabia's files. That's yeah. how Susan found it. You mean Christina's files that Rabia had. Exactly. Yes. Right. All right. So I'm just going to play another listener voice memo. This is from Marsh Neal in Toronto. Uh, read the judge's comments on whether he thought Asia's testimony would have made a difference to the jury. She's wondering whether hearing the testimony during the long trial versus a day-long hearing or a five-day-long hearing would have made a difference in perception. How much information is a jury really able to process during a long trial? It doesn't seem like Gutierrez presented a very linear defense, and I'm not convinced that the jury would have had the same understanding of the day that the judge had from reading the full material. All right, Toby, as the resident many times serving on a jury uh, among us, (laughs) what do you think? Can a jury take in as much information in a weeks-long trial as a judge can take in in a one-day or two-day or five-day hearing? What do you think? I think they can take in the information. I think the problem is, you know, you've got 12 people and whether they're all or even some of them are able to analyze it in the same way. I mean, I've never been on a full week trial, but even on like a trial that took three days. Was that the lumber theft? The lumber <laughs> theft was a long one because we had to we had to go out and take a look at the at the paddock. You had to do a view. Yeah. yeah. Um, wait, they, they took, you'll notice here this is maple. Okay. Wait a minute. They took you on a view for the lumber theft, really? Oh yeah. Yeah, we got into a, we got into a bus and we went out there. It was it was totally they're like cuz if you don't really know what's going on, they're like, "Well, you know, yeah. take a look at take a look at that berm over there and, you know, take a look at the way these trees are angled." Wow. Why? Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Because yeah. you know, you 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 go into it completely yeah. blind, and then you go back like the next day, or, or I don't care if it's that afternoon or the next day, and then they start explaining what was going on to you, and you're like, that would have been really helpful when we were out there because I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> just had no idea. In what some I was states, to be. they do the view after opening arguments. Which for that. to me makes sense. sense. Or yeah. even if they had taken pictures so they mm-hmm. could refresh our memories, but it was just like, remember back when, you know, there was no, like, if it would have been me, and I don't know if there are rules against this, but I would have taken a few pictures and blown them up so I could have, like, refreshed people's memories. <laughs> yeah. But it was just like, oh, yeah, remember the, the angle of the berm? Like, Toby no, taking a selfie next to the, yeah, the exactly. logs. My a couple underst- of my, fr- my juror friends. Yeah, my understanding of Laura is that the way that it works is you're supposed to do the view with, like, without being, like, tainted by anything that anybody said. So, like, as the juror, it's your job to just sort of, like, take in stuff <laughs> But you might not know why it is that you're in yeah. a certain room or place. You don't even know. I don't think we even knew that it was timber taking. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> <No. laughs> like, Trees, grass, a berm. You know, it's like, what does it all mean? So he's like, I can't wait to get to the bottom of this homicide. <laughs> that's exactly right. I don't see any blood. Well, that's the problem um, with doing the view first is that you're looking at stuff that has not yet been presented into no evidence. <laughs> no, it hasn't been presented in evidence. And that, you, you know, a defense attorney has an, an opportunity to object to that becoming into evidence. So it is hard. 
what Toby was talking about with the pictures, I mean, that's something that I used to do a lot is go out and take pictures at scenes. And then if it was something that was going to be relevant at trial, we would then introduce the pictures as evidence. And in some cases have them blown up and, you know, mounted on the big poster board styrofoam stuff. Um, so in that case, you could go back and see what the berm looked like. This trial was so bonkers that the only visual we got like that was of one of the witnesses' own houses, like a witness, a real, a realtor who was testifying that the removal of those trees actually increased their property value. And then the lawyers for the other side had gone and taken a picture of his house that was surrounded by trees. This shitty little house, you mean? It was insane. People were like, wait, you like found out where that guy lived and went and took pictures of his house? And it was like, ah, oh, we demonstrate that actually trries are good for property value or some <laughs> such. It was bizarre. I, I so could the, do so a, the answer a to the question is, yeah, juries are kind of fucked up. And- <laughs> well, but I, I think I think the analysis that that he makes about what's important and what isn't important, you know, I'm not convinced that like all jurors would boil it down to that moment yeah. in, in Lincoln Park, you yeah. know, and so he's I think, a professional jurist. You know, I thought it was, and this is why I brought it up before, is that it seemed like it was a bit of an assumption to think that, like, even if it wasn't material in his mind, in a juror's mind who's trying to weigh all these different things that it hasn't made certain decisions about what what parts of the case are strong and what parts aren't, that may, may have made a difference. So, I, again, I have not spent much time around courtrooms other than being on a jury, but it seemed to me that that was making a fairly big assumption about how jurors would think. How jurors think, but also, like, I think the other thing that's faulty about this question is that the ruling wasn't made with that audience in mind. It was made with an appellate court in mind. So it's almost like the writing of the opinion, it's like we're not supposed to be the audience for this. The audience is supposed to be the appeals court who's going to get the appeal from the state about why his conviction couldn't be vacated. And the appeals court that's going to make a decision about whether or not he deserves a new trial. Like, that's who the audience is for this. Laura, am I right about that? Yeah, no, this is definitely, you know, this is the legal audience and the lawyers who are going to, you know, go through this and parse out anything that they can to appeal on or challenge. So it's it's a different type of case. And even Asia's testimony, I would expect is different in this case than it would be if you were at a trial before jurors. You know, I totally agree with you. And I I think that one of the things we touched on earlier episode is that Asia's testimony at this hearing happened when she was a grown ass woman. You know, she's like in her 30s now. You know, she presents very differently than I think she would have presented giving the same testimony when she was you know, 17 years old in 1999. And to say that that could have swayed the jury at that time, and I I think it's fair to say that it may not have swayed the jury because you're not looking at the same person that you're now looking at at this hearing. So I, I get all of those decisions, and I do understand that this is wasn't for that audience. So, you know, that being said, Toby, it sounds like you haven't moved much from a lot of your thinking around this. But we did have one listener who had a question specifically for you. Uh, this is Hillary, and she had a question for the person that she called our resident naysayer. So I'm just going to go ahead and play that right now. She called me the resident naysayer? She did. Where she, do you think she picked that up from? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No idea. She didn't it's call weird. you negative Nelly. I mean, that's good, I All guess, right. right? Full disclosure, although I really appreciate Toby's opinions now, I didn't so much back in the day. <laughs> so I was just wondering if... Ad not getting a new trial changed his opinion anyway about guilt or innocence. Thanks a lot. 
All right, Toby, go. You know, I, I, I still, I, my basic feeling is like, A, I'm glad he got a new trial. Like, I think that definitely needed to happen. B, you know, it clearly didn't happen the way the prosecution said it did. I, I don't feel like I have a very strong idea of what the alternatives are. And I'm not sure that because it didn't happen the way the prosecution said it did, that Adnan might not have been involved in it happening in a different way. But, you know, I haven't followed it as closely as a lot of people have, like all these details that have come out afterwards. So maybe his time is accounted for. So, you know, again, I, I, I just don't feel like I have a very strong opinion one way or the other, other than clearly, I, I think the second trial, the one that put him away, was not fair to him. All right. Well, you're on a podcast and Laura, you were on a podcast and Kevin, you were on a podcast that started out as a podcast about a podcast serial. So, Laura, I'm going to start with you with this big question. This is what's been floating around the last few days after this news came out about Anand's PCR hearing decision. So, Laura, how much credit do you think Sarah Koenig and Serial deserve for winning this PCR hearing for Adnan and potentially getting him a new trial, getting the original conviction vacated? I think, you know, at first blush, you want to say, boy, if they hadn't done this podcast, this case never would have gotten all this attention. And I think that that is a legitimate thing to say. But when you look at the issues that actually resulted in this, the appeal being granted in Adnan's favor, that was the result of Susan Simpson and Rabia and those folks going over the evidence. And it was evidence that wasn't even really talked about on Serial with the cell phone cover sheet. So I do think, though, that in cases like this where there is a lot of media attention, it does tend to stir up the case and bring it back to the forefront. And I think had that not happened, you know, I don't know if Rabia on her own would have, I mean, eventually she probably would have gotten to this process, but I think the amount of attention that this case got through Serial definitely propelled it forward and back into the limelight and got a lot of people interested in taking part. You know, I I said this in a previous episode and I'll say it again. Rabia tried for 15 years to get this case some attention. Mm -hmm. She didn't get the attention until Sarah Koenig decided to look at it. Yeah. I don't know. I I don't want to say Sarah Koenig and Serial deserve 100% credit, but they damn near deserve you know, a, a, yeah. a big piece of the pie chart. Toby, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think she deserves a huge amount of the credit. I, I just think about how many people sitting in prison right now around the country are plausibly innocent and had trials that weren't fair, you know, mm-hmm. thousands. I don't know. But he's the one who's gotten out. And I think it's because having his or I guess he isn't out yet, but he's gotten the retrial because she brought so much attention to the case. And did it came, so well, came, right? Came resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, yeah. You know, when we talk about, you know, is it being wealthy is the key in our justice system in some ways, you know, that, that wealth basically provides access to resources. And I think that the podcast allowed Adnan and, and Rabia access to resources that they wouldn't have had if it hadn't been for the podcast. So I, I think whether her like actual investigation was that helpful in the in the final judge's decision, you know, not that much, but I just don't think that without the like overwhelming attention it got from Serial that Susan Simpson and Colin and, and all those guys would be so invested in it. 
because there's just so many other cases. Now, Kevin, I want to give you props on one very specific thing around this question. Okay. Um, way back in February, we talked about this PCR hearing on the show. I asked you whether you thought what Sarah Koenig had discovered on Serial was most likely to get Adnan a win. Do you want to hear what you actually said? Yeah, right. <laughs> Let's right. go to the Wayback Machine. Sarah does get a lot of credit, I, you know, but I think a lot of credit also goes to the undisclosed team. First of all, they raised an awful lot of money for this legal fund. But also the contribution of Susan Simpson and the cell phone evidence, I think that's actually the stronger argument than the ineffective counts, although it does play to it. The whole fact that not only there's the Brady violation, which, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's uh, on purpose or not. That's clearly a Brady violation to a big piece of evidence. But the fact that you're able to undermine half of the state's case and there was no fry test, then it also shows speaks to Gutierrez's incompetence. I think that is the stronger argument. I think that the press that's covering this are missing that point. So, yes, I you know, get Sarah pushed the ball downfield into the red zone. And I think that you can give undisclosed the assist for handing it off and hopefully getting it across the goal line. 90% accurate what you just said. Take the Brady thing off the table. Everything else was 100% what you just said. So You can't edit that out? You feeling smug? <laughs> Quality analysis That right was there. you back in February. Yeah. Are you feeling smug I, or what? Kind of like the grinder, right? I was just going to say that. You're like the grinder. <laughs> I'm like the grinder of appellate law. And, and if I were to open up a, a law office for appellate law like the grinder, I would use Weebly to set up my website. <laughs> Because Weebly is the easy way to set up a great-looking website that looks good on desktop. With no Brady violations. <laughs> With no Brady violations. <laughs> Look, I use Weebly at work every day. What did I do today just for the heck of it? You used Weebly? I used Weebly, and I I put in a, a high-definition video. Just drop, click your video here. Just for fun. Just for fun. Look, I, <laughs> I have also had to suffer through, and God help you if you know anything about ever had to learn anything about coding a website. If you know what a cascading style sheet is, then your life is horrible. I do, but you, never... don't, you don't need to know that if you have a good web design tool. You don't. It's all drop and drag. It's what you see is what you get. It makes fantastic websites for people who are busy doing other things, but you need to be on the web. If you're making jewelry at home and you're selling it, if you're offering your services by singing Toby jingles on ukuleles, or if you're going to try to win an appeal at the Supreme Court. As an amateur. As an amateur. <laughs> you need a great website and you can get one from Weebly. Join the over 30 million people who have already dreamed big with Weebly. Get started today for free at Weebly.com slash Crime Writers. Remember to use that code because that's how they know you heard it here. That's Weebly W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com slash Crime Writers. Weebly.com slash Crime Writers. My 10-year-old daughter made a made a website on Weebly. Really? Oh, so how does it look? Just, oh, it looks awesome. Like, I literally, I said, I'll sit down and help you with it. And she, like, took a look at it for about 30 seconds and just grabbed the computer away from me. And I went off and did something else. And she put <laughs> it all together. So is what you're saying that your daughter has surpassed you when it comes to website development? Yes or no? Uh, uh, well, it, it, that's just one of many ways in which she surpassed me. Question uh, two. Did she use the promo code Crime Writers when she made this website? <laughs> of course she did. <laughs> that was probably my prime... <laughs> Uh, contribution to the whole thing was All that right. I got her to put in crime writers. But, <laughs> nice, nice. but anyway, she's very smart. But 
A 10-year-old can do it. Even a 10-year-old can do it. All right. Well, now it's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast, a little thing I like to call the crime, crime of, of the, the week. week. <laughs> the crime of the week. week. As Our, opposed to the crime of the strong, that's uh, what I'm coming As opposed to the, to the crime of the bi-week. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, the theme of this podcast this evening has been what? Listener interaction, right? Mm-hmm. We've had so many voice memos. Well, we got a voice memo this week that was actually somebody confessing on tape their own crime, and we decided to make that the crime of the week. So Crystal from Little Rock wants to make a little marital confession, and this is our crime of the week. I wanted to listen to your latest podcast, and then I realized, like, ooh, I got to watch the shows. You know, I got to two to watch, the Adnan Syed and the O.J. Simpson one, and so I've been putting it off, putting it off, and I've just been getting so itchy, so I decided to watch the O.J. ones by myself uh, before my husband got back from work, and I was about halfway through the second episode before I got this pit in my stomach thinking I shouldn't be watching this alone, he'd love to see this, but yet I desperately want to listen to the crime writers on podcast um so i was in a conundrum right there so um (laughs) so i ended up just uh when he got home i said look i'm gonna go do the dishes i'm gonna go clean that's a little bit you go ahead and sit down right here and uh watch these get all caught up because i i need i need to listen to the podcast media philandering that is the crime of the week she cheated on her husband with us so media philandering that is our crime of the week so here's my question for you laura what tv show movie podcast or other media item have you gone behind your spouse's back and done a little media philandering with Well, I hate to admit this, but I'm going to admit this happens all the time in our house. So we'll start watching a show together. And it's hard to find a show that we both want to watch because my husband always wants to watch like Alaska, the Bush people. And I'm like pretty much all set with that. Mm -hmm. So I think the biggest one that he continues to bring up was Black Sails, which is the pirate show on the Star Show channel. And I have to say, I I did have a thing for the Charles Vane character um, played by Zach McGowan, and I just couldn't stop watching the show. So it was like we started watching it one night and then... My husband went to bed, and I just watched, like, I don't know, 10 episodes or something. <laughs> I have a question, Laura. Alaska, the Bush People, is that a title you just made up, or is that, like, no, a real show? it's a real show. There's it's Bush like, People in Alaska. They're out in the Alaskan wilderness, and there's, like, three people they follow around, and there's some guy with these dogs, and he goes around, and he's like, Ginger, Ginger, <laughs> like, calling his dog. And then he's like, there's wolves out here. And, like, it's just, it's awful. I got to make a podcast with your husband about Alaska, the bush people. That sounds pretty fun. I don't know. It's great. So, yeah, Black Sales was the biggest offender, though, in our house. All right, Kevin, true confessions. This is your wife asking you. What media item, TV show, movie, or podcast have you gone behind my back and cheated on me with? Uh, Porn doesn't count, right? No. (laughs) (laughs) That's not cheating. That's That's, just assumed. That's your your special alone time. I'm cool with that. (laughs) Okay. um, The thing, and you know this, I've already confessed this. I think you confessed it on this podcast. Yes, I have confessed it on this podcast. We had uh, tickets to go see Star Wars, uh, The Force Awakens, on a Saturday. And I went to see it on Friday (laughs) before you, with you on Saturday, and then again on Monday. But the crime, though, was... We all went as a family, and it was a plan that you made on Saturday 
for us to see the movie as a family, and you sat there and pretended like it was all new. I'm a weak man, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so Toby, is this ringing any bells for you? Have you ever gone behind your back to any member of your family and cheated on them with a media product, TV show, movie, podcast, or otherwise? Um, No. <laughs> <laughs> it's been completely faithful. I've been completely. The only thing I can think of is I think while we were watching Silicon Valley, I got the feeling that my wife wasn't that into it. And then so I watched like two or three episodes one night. And then when I was popping on like episode seven, she's like, hold on a second. What happened? Oh, yeah. By the that's, way, that's a, that's that a means pretty you've funny cheated. story, huh? That, that means you actually have done it. That's what it means. It's just like all those Red Sox games that I watch when Kevin's not home. What? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I, I would never watch yeah. baseball. Never, ever, ever. Baseball is the worst thing ever. I just wanted to see what you would say. All right. So I think we're going to end it on that note. Toby Ball, if our listeners want to tweet with you and give you crap about your media philandering, how can they find you on the Twitter? It's at Toby Ball NH. And Laura, if our listeners want to tweet to you and extol the virtues of Alaska, the Bush people, <laughs> how can they find you on Twitter? <laughs> It's at Laura Bricker, and it's L-A-R-A. Kevin Flynn, our listeners want to tweet to you and, I don't know, talk to you about how many times they've seen Star Wars The Force Awakens. How can they do that? Uh, the Force is strong with me, at Kevin P. Flynn. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. Our little show is also on Twitter, at CrimeWritersOn, so send us a tweet or send us a voice memo. The directions for how to do that are posted right on our website, CrimeWritersOn.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our newsletter, vote for our book club picks, and get entered into that contest to win Toby's trilogy of books. You can also make a PayPal donation to support the studio or use our Amazon link to do some shopping. Buy something pricey, please. And if you love the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It helps new listeners discover the podcast. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show was recorded in Studio C at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. a kill room slash closet slash, I don't know, sweat box in our basement. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. What about you, Kevin? What was your initial reaction? I know you spoiled it a little bit in the teaser, but go ahead and recreate it for us. <laughs> recreate? What do you mean? Recreate your reaction when you heard that thing. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm not getting a new trial. <laughs> why, why, why do we not have like a proper telephone number for Toby? We always have like six phone numbers and none of them are his. Well, you know, we do this little game at dinner. It's mm -hmm. one of these like question games. I don't know if you guys ever resorted to this with your kids, um, you know, to stir a conversation. One of the questions tonight was like, who in your family could actually secretly be a double agent? Maybe it's Toby, <laughs> you know? I think that they believe they have a duty that this guy was, was, uh, what? Just give me the pen. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Our uh, ability uh, to signal like pantomime to each other is completely gone you're tonight. Pointing to my wine. <laughs> I don't know. I got it. Okay. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.